What's up, nerds? New year, new pod intro. Things are turning up for the Super Utility Pod, boys. Hope you like that. I spent way too much time on it last week trying to create it, but I made it just for you guys. And I know what you're thinking right now. Seth, why'd you have to make it slap so damn hard? And it's because I care. It's because this league deserves it. Um, Man, New Year. It doesn't quite feel like a new year, though, because as you guys know, no opening day today. Um, I'm recording late into the evening for what was supposed to be the 2020 opening day. But because of the concern over the spread of COVID-19, there were no new baseball games today. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't have a new pod Um, I figured, you know, I've got nothing to do, and uh, with a lot of us probably working from home and needing some distractions, needing something to help pass the time, I figured, hey, why not? Um, But with that said, um, yesterday, early today, there was a new update from um, a few different sources covering the MLB, uh, stating that in the MLB commissioner, different teams ownership um, are targeting a start to the season uh, that would begin in early June uh, and hoping for a season that would last about 140 to 150 games. Um, and along with that, uh, pro baseball in Korea and, and Japan has resumed for their 2020 season, um, which lends a little bit of hope that Maybe uh, there will be a 2020 season for Major League Baseball after all. So I figured if that's the case, um, there's no reason not to give us a little something to dig into and look forward to for the 2020 fantasy baseball season. Um, The downside to this news is obviously that um, MLB season is still on hold until further notice. None of this, these are just reports um, from sources that are kind of covering the sport, covering uh, different teams' front offices and such. Um, But none of this is a lock. Uh, The upside to this, though, um, is that if if that does follow through, so I don't think 140, if you do start in early June, I don't think 140 games is very realistic. Um, Maybe something closer to 120 games. Um, But if if, regardless, if you do start in early June... um, looking at your rosters that you might have in place already, any players that you have that um, were, were going to start the season injured and potentially miss the first you know, one to three months of the season, like in my case, uh, James Paxson, Mike Clevenger, those guys kind of automatically um, have their, their value kind of reinvigorated for the 2020 season because they're not going to be missing uh, so much of the season. Um, same, but... Uh, same goes for guys like uh, Stanton, who I, and who I think was going to start the season injured, so, and you know the such. Um, of course, the exact opposite is true of players that you have that may be dealing with uh, suspensions that drag you know a month or so into the season. So, uh, looking at waivers, guys like Michael Pineda, um, who I think has a 39 game suspension, uh, or I think on Drager's team, uh, Domingo Herman has a 63-game suspension, and if you're starting in early June, um, you know, and you're playing 120, 140 games, you're missing just about half your season there with those guys. So in those guys' cases, kind of really detracts from their value. Um, 
but we're not here to talk about who we already have on our teams. Um, we're here to talk about the best available players on waivers. So some of you guys may remember I sent out a text, put it on the Facebook page. Um, a few different suggestions for the podcast this season. Wanted to get some feedback from you guys. I had some ideas. I wanted to hear what you guys had. And Drager responded. Uh, the rest of you didn't say anything positive or negative. So I took that as giving me free reign to do what I want. Um, and so one of the ideas that I had was taking our segment from last year's episodes, um, where at the end of each episode, we would spend a few times talking a few minutes, which usually ended up being like 30 or 40 minutes talking about a few players on waivers, uh, that were available, um, and, and kind of highlighting reasons we thought that they should be added. And I had an idea, uh, just based on some feedback that I had from guys last year when we were recording, um, it seemed like a lot of guys were either felt underprepared or a little overwhelmed by that um, just because they didn't quite know all of the players that were out there. Um, and so I figured it could be helpful to um, for, for me to kind of take this and make it a, a solo project that I do as kind of one-off episodes between our more standard format episodes, um, but still keeping the same vision, uh, the same goal in mind with why we do this. Uh, as a lot of you guys know, from the very beginning of this league, uh, really up to, you know, as we've added new guys the past two seasons, um, this league has been a pretty good mixture of casual fans and really big baseball nerds like myself. Um, but there is a, a good number of guys who are still very new to fantasy baseball. Some of us new to fantasy sports in general. Um, a lot of guys that are more casual fans, uh, there's a lot of fans of the Yankees or fans of the Braves or if you're Justin and you're a glutton for punishment fans of the Miami Marlins for some reason uh and and I'm not saying that those guys specifically but there are some guys who may feel like they don't know a ton of players outside of the guys on the teams that they really cheer for and follow um and so I thought it could be helpful just to revisit the goal um before we really dive into things the goal of what this segment is um, is really just to not only highlight useful players that are available on waivers so that guys can hear names of different players that they could potentially go add and help their roster um, for fantasy purposes, but also just to educate uh, and kind of foster discussion among the league around these analytic stats that we've, we've kind of touched on a little bit in the podcast episodes last season. Um, and, and just to go beyond the counting stats that you'd see on the back of a baseball card or even the counting stats that you'd see that our league competes with um, for the reason of being able to, to look at those and learn how to, you know, help each of us learn how to uh, interpret those analytic stats as well as being able to apply them to fantasy um, in order to, to help us each be able to identify potential breakout players um, be able to identify when we, we think we might see an unsustainable performance, whether unsustainably really good or unsustainably really bad. Um, and as well as just helping each of us to be more informed fans, uh, and more competitive fantasy managers in this league as a result. Um, more importantly, probably what this segment is not is it's not going to be a way of me, telling people how to run their team from the start of when we began the podcast. Um, and even when I do the off season, um, top available waiver player posts, 
that's the desire is not for me to tell people how to run their team. Um, it's not for me to tell people who I think they should drop or how uh, I think they should play, think about different players and evaluate different stats. Um, so the goal is taking all that in mind for, for all of us as a league, for you guys to use this segment as a tool and, and sort of a training as we kind of develop this discussion on how we can all develop and improve our rosters and our, our individual strategies and fantasy as we get a deeper understanding on um, a lot of these advanced analytical statistics that are supporting or working against potentially the counting stats that we see um, more often in our league. Um, with that in mind, the format of how I want to do this, because usually, I mean, for me, it's going to be a little weird because usually this is a discussion that I would have with another person on the podcast with me. Um, and I feel a little naked not having said person on the podcast with me, whoever that person may be. Um, but the format's going to change a little bit as a result. Uh, last year, because it was me and one other person and we would both be talking about players and inevitably I would end up rambling quite a bit. And sometimes the other person, the guests on the podcast, um, the goal is to try and keep these podcasts within 30 and 45 minutes. Um, this podcast, this first episode may be a little different just cause I'm doing a little bit of an extended intro. Um, but last year, uh, a lot of the podcasts just in general were long. So hopefully moving this segment to a solo thing would help those other more standard format podcasts where I have a guest on stay a little shorter. Um, but it would also help me to be able to go in depth and kind of start that conversation about different players that are available, looking at their different stats uh, and kind of just starting that conversation with you guys in the league. The format's going to be beyond in, in that 30, 30 to 45 minutes. I'll be naming five players uh, that are currently on waivers that I think should be on the top five players out there that I think should be owned currently. Um, and I'm going to use statistical analysis that I can observe that is available to you guys on a couple of different sites that I'll name drop um, and present a case for why I think that they should be owned. Uh, of those five players, at least two have to be pitchers and at least two have to be batters. Um, reason for that being I don't want to everybody has different roster needs. There's a handful of teams in the league that have uh, a ton of pitchers and they feel set there, but maybe need a lot of, you know, some batters to help out um, other teams kind of the, the exact opposite. So I want to take a, a balanced approach, present a balanced number of both batters and pitchers um, in the hopes to kind of address either team on either side of the aisle there. Um, and beyond those five players at the end of each episode, I'm going to outline a few other names to consider. Uh, ideally, it would probably be about three names per episode. This one, there's going to be um, several more than that, probably just because I feel like there's a lot of, at the start of the season for us, um, there's a lot of players out there that I think could maybe help a few teams for different reasons. Um, but those those names to consider just going to be guys who didn't make the cut for the top five for whatever reason. Um, with those names, it's just going to be quick hits. I'm not going to go into any in-depth statistical analysis. I'm just going to quickly explain why they didn't make the cut for the top five, um, but also why I think there's reasons for considering them um, having a spot on your roster. Um, like I mentioned, uh, there's going to be a few sites that I name drop from where I receive these stats that I'm looking up and that I'm going to be talking about. Um, 
One of them is Fangraphs, which I, I made a post about last year, kind of told a few of you guys, but Fangraphs is a phenomenal site. It's free, all sorts of different um, stats that are available, both kind of standard counting stats and ratio stats, as well as a lot of different uh, analytical stats and, and um, kind of dis- different um, ratio stats that, that can tell you how different players' games are from one another. I don't really know how to fully explain it. Um, but things like strikeouts per nine innings, um, ground ball rate versus fly ball rate, uh, hard hit rate, and you'll hear me talk about some of those stats a little bit later. Um, but they're phenomenal, and uh, they happen to house a ton of different projections that are made available on their site through different partnerships they have. Um, and so I know a lot of you guys are maybe only familiar with ESPN projections. And I think ESPN projections, ESPN projections are fine. I think it's a really great baseline. Um, and I think as you're looking at your rosters and preparing for any season, or even when you're evaluating, I guess, yeah, preparing for any season, and you're looking at those projections, um, I've kind of said it on a few other uh, podcast episodes before, but as you're looking at those um whether I fully agree or disagree with ESPN or any other projection system or not, um, the guys that are making these stats are industry leaders. They're, they're really smart dudes. Uh, they get paid a lot of money to look at a lot of different numbers. They look at stats from last year, dating back several years, even back into guys' minor league careers. Um, they plug a lot of this stuff into computers with the stats as well as ballpark factors, um, their schedule, you know, the, the pitchers are going to face the most, their lineup and how that's going to benefit or um, detract from their ability to put up better stats. And they run a ton of simulations and they come up with uh, their own algorithm and it creates their projections for those players. Um, and so if you see a player that has really poor projections on your roster currently and you're deciding to still own them, my uh, I don't know, my challenge to guys is to to really evaluate why you're owning them. Don't just, you know, I don't think it's always enough to say, oh, because I like them. Um, and that's part of what this podcast is going to help us do by being able to really rationalize and, and reason through some of this stuff. Um, but, you know, in owning those guys who are really poorly projected and, and possibly have really low ownership percentages in ESPN leagues, you're essentially saying that you think you know something that these industry leaders do not know um, as they develop those projections, which is fine. There's plenty of players on my team who I feel like ESPN's too low on, as well as there's other players on my team that I think ESPN's a little too high on, and I don't think they're going to do quite as well as ESPN does. Um, But I think I have good enough reasons for owning them coming into 2020. Um, That said, Fangraphs has a lot of different... Um, projection systems that they make available. Um, I'll be referencing one of those specifically, but uh, I did want to highlight those for you guys just so you can kind of know they're out there, that you can go and look at them. Um, The first of those is Steamer, which is, uh, and I'll try and breeze through these real quick. I know this is really boring and heavy. The first of those projection systems is Steamer, which is traditionally the earliest projections that are released every offseason, and that's kind of like the baseline for um, all other projection systems in the industry use that as kind of their litmus test, if you will. Um, the second of those, and the one that we'll be referencing today, 
on the podcasts and on future podcasts. Anytime I make a reference in the offseason waiver wire players postings, um, I'm referencing Fangraph's own um, projections, which are labeled as depth charts projections. Um, and essentially, they take steamers, early projections. Um, they do a little, a few tweaks of those, uh, and then adjust them based on their own playing time projections. And so it's a little more accurate based on how many innings they think a pitcher is going to pitch, how many at bats they think a certain batter is going to get, um, for whatever reason. And, uh, it's just a good, I think, middle ground baseline projection system. Um, the other three that I think are worth highlighting, uh, are zips, um, which is made by some random guy, I think Dan Zembrowski, but, um, I think one of the, uh, the other is ATC and the third is called the bat. And all three of those are also available. If you just go to a player's page in fan graphs and scroll down just a little bit and you'll see all of those projections made available. Um, I think those three are worth mentioning a, because over the past three, four seasons, each of them has been consistently among the most accurate projections in all of fantasy baseball. Um, but I think also each of them has a different strength that you might want to look at to help you kind of balance and make decisions on as you're looking at projections, what player you think you might want to own over another. Uh, Zips, I think, is really good at accounting for um, regression in that if a player had a really poor season due to bad luck on batting average on balls in play, um, they account for that really well. Um, also if a player had really good luck for some reason, they kind of account for that and pull them back a bit as well. Um, they also are really good at accounting for the aging curve of players as players become more veteran. They're usually one of the better projection systems at figuring out when a player is going to start regressing. Uh, the bat, which is another one that I mentioned is traditionally the past two or three seasons. I think they've been in the top three most accurate projection systems each year. They're really great at accounting for ballpark factors for both pitchers and hitters. Um, so if a pitcher, if a batter goes to a new team and um, is in a much more offensive-oriented ballpark, he'll those projections will be the most accurate generally at showing those, vice versa for a pitcher. Um, as well as they do a really good job of um, kind of accounting for rookies coming in um, and a lot of a lot of projection systems tend to be really bullish on certain rookies, and it, the bat's really good at kind of tempering those expectations and being a little more accurate, a little more realistic, um, kind of based on their minor league track record and how they think that's going to actually make the adjustment to Major League Baseball. And the last one is ATC, which is kind of unique in that they take all of the projection systems that are out there, not uh, I guess most of them, maybe not all of them, um, and they kind of apply different weights to each one based on what each is best at projecting. Um, so they would give a certain weight to the bat, they would give a certain weight to zips, a certain weight to steamer and depth charts and all these others, ESPN and so forth. Um, and each one's kind of graded differently, and then they put all those together, kind of average them out, and they get this really accurate uh, last season for example they were not only the overall most accurate but they were individually the most accurate for projecting both batters and individually for projecting pitchers um, and it's because of that 
kind of formula they have. That doesn't mean they're going to be the most accurate every season, but it's worth noting that there's other projection systems out there aside from ESPN that are really good at projecting what players um, are going to do in the upcoming season for you guys to be able to, to look at and balance out those ideas. Um, so as we get into this, into the actual meat and potatoes of the episode, um, there's a few players I might mention preseason stats for. Uh, all preseason stats that I mentioned are going to be sourced from baseballreference.com. Um, they have a really cool feature where they uh, give an opponent quality rating for the preseason. And so they kind of take the cumulative of all the players a certain batter or a certain pitchers faced, and they give them a grade on a scale of 1 to 10 based on the uh, competition level that the cumulative of all those players, any, any certain players faced grades out as. Um, and so like if you grade out as, as an eight for your opponent quality, uh, that means you've tr- generally been facing triple a level caliber players. Uh, if you're like a seven, that's more double a caliber players. Uh, the closer you get to 10, the closer you are to facing MLB caliber players. I know spring stats, um, usually aren't that indicative of in-season success. And it's often because you're not facing true MLB talent across the board. Um, But for certain players that we're going to talk about today, uh, some of these guys are coming off injured seasons. So spring stats are really the most recent meaningful baseball that we have to look at for them. Uh, And so I will reference that for a few players. Um, Otherwise, any season projections that I reference are sourced from fan graphs, um, their own depth charts projections. Um, and without further ado, we're just going to go ahead and get into it, boys. Um, so starting off with our top five players, um, like I said, I'm going to name five players currently available on waivers that I think should be owned, um, in this league. That doesn't mean that every team has a spot for them, but I think that looking over the league, looking at different needs for different teams, there's probably a team out there that could use any one of these five players, um, depending on if you need pitching or hitting or what have you. Um, Just as a note before I get into this, two of the stats that I'll be referencing with these hitters that you may not be familiar with are weighted on base average and weighted runs created plus. Each of those are just weighted metrics that negate the impacts, whether positive or negative, on a player's stats. so like certain ballpark factors, like if you're a batter that plays in Coors Field, Coors Field tends to inflate your offensive stats. These two metrics are weighted in a way they, they kind of negate those baked in positive impacts and assign a true talent rating to grade a player's batting skills. Uh, and so as you're, as you're hearing these numbers thrown around, um, just for reference, like a, a, a weighted run created plus that is above 100 is considered above average. So if a player has a 110 um, runs created plus, that means they're 10% better than the average major league hitter. Um, And same is true of the opposite. If they're like a 90 or an 80 or what have you, they're that much percentage worse than the average hitter, um, accounting for, not accounting for their uh, inflated or deflated um, ballpark factors. Um, with that in mind, the first guy that I want to talk about is a guy that's been on the most recent, um, off season edition of top available waiver players. 
His name is Christian Walker, first baseman for Arizona. I think he was owned for a short time last season uh, by Matt, maybe. I can't remember. Um, but I wanted to go over him. I think he's a really solid player. Uh, kind of the long and short of it is that he's he's fairly young. He's entering his age 29 season. He was a bit of a late bloomer. Last year was his first full season in the majors. Um, what's different about this year than what last year was is he's kind of coming into the start of the season with a very clear path to playing time because of his success last year. Um, he had a great year last year, 29 homers, had a pretty respectable average, good OPS. Uh, his OPS was above 800 for the full season, which is really useful for just about any roster. Um, and he's got 30 home run potential. And uh, after, you know, he made some positive improvements along the course of the season as he adjusted to major league pitching. Um, and, this, and especially in the second half, what we'll look at here. So I think it's definitely worth owning. Um, for reference, his projections from fan graphs are 68 runs, 23 home runs, 74 RBI, five stolen bases, a 252 average, and a 791 OPS. Um, not quite as good as what his stats were last year. Uh, there's a few different projection systems that are a little lower on him. Um, but I think that he could do even better than that, and we'll kind of talk about that here. So last year, um, Walker got off to a pretty hot start, caught the eyes of a lot of different fantasy managers. He was a pretty popular ad at the beginning of the season. Um, over the first half, he put up 20 doubles, 17 home runs, uh, 46 runs, 45 RBI, and he had a 263 batting average with an 837 OPS. Uh, so pretty stellar numbers across the board. Um, those counting stats, there's some guys that can't put that up in a full season. Um, and that was just over the first half. So uh, it, even though in the second half, if you look at his splits, his, his counting stats took a dip in production, kind of tailed off. Um, but looking at his underlying stats like we will here, I think there's reason to believe in another strong season for him. Um, Walker improved his walk rate in the second half to 13.9%. It rose 5%, five full percentage points. He also decreased his strikeout percentage um, down to 22.8%, which is really respectable, uh, and that decreased 5.2 percentage points. Um, he maintained an OPS above 800 for the full season, so even though he had um, a dip in his power production in the second half because he was drawing more walks, because he was getting on base more often. Uh, he still had a really respectable OPS, which kind of helped make him still a viable player to own in the second half. Um, he also had, even despite the lack of, or the lesser production uh, in counting stats, and particularly in his power numbers, he had a similar weighted on base average, both over the first and second half. In the first half, it was 348. And the second half is 343, and both of those are really high um, grades to be given for that for that metric. Um, and his weighted run created plus was also very similar, very close. Uh, in the first half, it was 113, and the second half was 110. So he was an above-average batter, even with the, the dip in production in the second half. He was still a fairly well-above-average batter. Um, he also made slight improvements to his plate discipline, which is always important. Uh, doesn't do you any good if you have a ton of power, but you can't make contact and you strike out all the time, which he actually improved in, which is, so that's, that's encouraging going into 2020. Uh, the decrease in his power can likely be attributed to, he, he was hitting fewer, fewer fly balls, 
Uh, he went from hitting 41% fly balls to only 35%. He also decreased his hard hit rate from 49% to 42%, 42.5%. Um, uh, the hard hit rate, though, came with a correlation in his what Fangraphs tags as his medium hit rate. Uh, that rose from 36% to 44.9%. Uh, and so, to me, all of that suggests that being his first full season of major league, grinding 162 games with the team, um, that kind of suggests to me that he was just fatigued in his first full season. Um, some of his other underlying stats didn't really change that drastically. He had a steady home run fly ball rate. It actually increased in the second half a little bit by just about a full percentage point. Um, he improved his pull rate, which generally translates to more power for players, especially power hitters. Um, and, and so all of that to say, given that there were so many of his stats that stayed, his underlying stats that stayed pretty consistent, um, and the stats that decreased, his underlying stats at least that decreased, seemed to just indicate fatigue, which is something that with a full offseason to prepare for you know, a, a full major league season, um, I think there's reason to believe that he's got another strong seasonism in him. He was a borderline top 10 first baseman um, last season. I think it was right around 12 or 13. If you count players that were only like that were primarily first base eligible and not the guys that had multiple position eligibility. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's definitely worth the add for me. Um, I would say for what it's worth to you guys, he's also had a pretty solid spring. Um, not spectacular, but he only played about 10 games. Um, still did a pretty good job. So all that to say, if you're in need of first base, um, whether you're a team that is trying to compete this year or a team that really just needs to field a competitive roster and get through this season, uh, Walker is a guy who can really benefit your roster, I believe. Um, he gives you good power numbers, uh, has a solid batting average and a really good OPS. And so he kind of helps out in those count in those ratio stats as well as the counting stats for you guys. Uh, the second player that I want to touch on, another player from Arizona, Carson Kelly, their catcher. He was a rookie last season. Um, had a had a mini breakout despite the fact that he was in a timeshare, kind of on the short end of a timeshare behind um, some of the other veteran catchers on the roster last season. Um, he's got a great prospect pedigree, though, and last season he had really great peripherals. Um, I think he was just about a top 10 catcher last season, even despite the fact that he wasn't getting much playing time because he just had such good stats. Uh, so I see I see somebody who could be in a breakout position for this year, somebody who could be easily a top 10 catcher, um, if you want to be really bullish on him, I think that he could be this year's version of Mitch Garver. Um, but he does have a little, a few things to work out on that. We'll talk. So, uh, that we'll talk through here. Fangraphs projections for him are 49 runs, 15 home runs, 50 RBI, a 249 average and a 767 OPS, which is actually worse than what he did last season. Uh, and I think there's plenty to suggest in his stats from last season that we'll talk through here that he could outdo those projections and match, if not surpass, what he did last year. Uh, so like I said, um, last year he was in a in the short end of a timeshare. It was his rookie season. Um, 
despite the fact that he was outperforming many established veteran backstops across the MLB, not uh, including those that were on his own roster, um, he, in that short playing time in 2019, finished with 46 runs, 18 home runs, 47 RBI. Uh, and he had a 245 batting average with an 826 OPS. Um, still, despite that, spent a lot of time on the bench. Um, but they got rid of Alex Avila, who was the primary catcher for Arizona last year that blocked his playing time. So this year he comes into 2020 with a clear path to playing time as well. Um, and we'll look at some of the peripherals, some of the underlying stats that I think give reason for optimism for this season, reason that I think he could even surpass those projections from fan graphs. Um, first off, I want to kind of temper the expectations with some of the bad elements from last season for him. Uh, he did have really terrible platoon splits in his rookie season, so he did really great versus left-handed pitching. Um, he had a 356 batting average with a 462 on base percentage and a 667 slugging percentage. That's insane. Um, it all came together for a 182 weighted runs created plus. So he was 82% better than the average batter when he was facing left-handed pitchers. Uh, and he also did similarly really well on the road. He had a 294 average, 380 on base percentage, 613 OPS. That comes to like a 993 OPS. Um, he was a, uh, that added up to a 148 weighted runs created plus. So he was about 50% better than the average hitter when he was on the road, which is a little weird because um, usually hitters are better at, at home where they're playing half their games. Um, but he, on the other hand, Struggled at home and struggled against right-handed pitching. Uh, against righties, he had a 203 batting average with just a 303 on-base average and 404 slugging percentage, so just above a 700 OPS. Um, he was about 21% worse than the average batter, according to his weighted runs created plus. Uh, he struggled at home even worse, where he had only a 192 average um, and just a 6... 46 OPS, it looks like, doing the math in my head. Um, 65 weighted run created plus. That's pretty atrocious. Um, the good news about that even, even looking at those splits, um, his poor results against right-hand pitchers and his poor results at home were really heavily fueled by very lucky and unsustainably low batting average on balls in play. So his results in ball, balls in play were... Um, terribly lucky to an unsustainable degree. He had a 214 BABIP against right-handed pitching and a 229 BABIP at home. Um, BABIP just stands for batting average and balls in play. Uh, for reference, an average would be right around 290 or 300. So he was well below what the league average was um, on balls in play, which really helped to weigh down those those slash lines. So I don't think he was actually a terrible hitter at home. I don't think he was actually a terrible hitter specifically against righties. Um, I, I think what you saw out of him on the road and on the road specifically against lefties, he, he got a little lucky with a bit of it. Um, but like on the road, he had a perfectly normal 312 batting average on balls in play. So I think you can kind of expect something more in line with that. Um, beyond that, even as a prospect, but in his rookie season as well, um, he had phenomenal plate discipline. He had a 79% contact rate, uh, a really low 8.6 swing and strike rate. Um, 
so he wasn't getting fooled on pitches very much. He had a 13.2 walk rate and a 21.6% strikeout rate, um, and he had elite hard hit rate. He was hitting uh, 48.7% of his balls were considered hard hit, um, hard contact by fan graphs, which among catchers last season with 250 or more plate appearances, he ranked second. Um, so that's a, a really great hard hit rate, really great potential for offensive numbers, particularly power numbers from the catcher position in this guy. So, and he also has really great defense, uh, which should keep him in the lineup pretty frequently as the primary catcher this season. Uh, so this is a guy who I think is stars rising. Um, if you are a team that was just rotating through catchers all last season and could not find somebody that gave you decent production, you're heading into this year, maybe you've got a veteran who is just really slacking and falling off um, that you feel like you need to replace. Maybe you have a young guy who you've been uh, just giving chance after chance that hasn't really panned out. Uh, I think Carson Kelly would be a perfectly suitable replacement to those guys. Third player that I want to talk through um, is Gregory Polanco, outfielder for the Pirates. Um, he's been in, I believe, both of the offseason top waiver player posts. Um, I understand why he's not owned. He's coming off of a back-to-back kind of injury season. So at the end, in September of 2018, he tore his labrum. And then last year, he really struggled through. He only played 42 games before he was shut down. He had complications in that left shoulder that he had the surgery on. Um, and, and he didn't look very great last season when he was playing. Um, I don't think he was fully healthy. He's also just one year removed from what was considered kind of a breakout season for him in which he hit 254. He had a 340 on base percentage and a 499 slugging percentage. So that's like a... 839 OPS. Um, he had 75 runs, 80 RB, 81 RBI, 23 home runs, and 12 steals in 2018. So this is a guy who has had a really solid season. Uh, he did all of that just across 130 games because, like I said, he got injured early in 2018. Um, so now that he's a year removed from that injury, he's had a full. Se- he, he finished last season with a few games in Triple A's. He was kind of rehabbing from that injury and team decided just to shut him down and give him an early start on the offseason so he's had a full offseason of being healthy and preparing Uh, I think that Polanco could be a really good under the radar bounce back candidate Um, could be a really good addition to a team's outfield mix so just kind of revisiting his projections from from fan graphs they're currently projecting him for 68 runs 22 home runs 71 RBI, 10 stolen bases, a 247 average, and a 776 OPS. Pretty similar counting stats to that kind of breakout 2018 um, with just a worse um, average, worse OPS. Uh, But I think that he could maybe be a little closer to what those 2018 numbers were based on some of the stats that we'll look at here. Um, So like I said, His surgically repaired soldier, I think, clearly cost him a lot of trouble as he was making his way back last season. Um, Across those 42 games he played before being shut down um, because of inflammation in that shoulder, he put up a career-worst strikeout rate of 29.3%. His previous career high was only 21.9%, so it jumped up 
seven full percentage points and some change. Um, he put up a career low contact rate of 70.8%. His previous low was only 78.3. In many seasons, it was at, at or above 80. Um, so he's always been a pretty solid contact guy. And then he was barely making contact on 70% of the pitches that he saw. Um, he also put up a career worst swing and strike rate of 14.7%. That was the first time in his entire career. He's played about four or five years. Um, that was the first time in his career that it's been above 10%. His previous high was 9.7% swing and strike rate. Um, so seems to me pretty obvious that the lingering effects from this torn labrum that he had on his left shoulder, he's a left-handed hitter, so something that was really messing with him in that shoulder and made him struggle with the ability to make contact on pitches as a result. Um, like I said, though, he's now a full year and some change removed from that injury um, when it first happened back in September of 2018. Um, and even after having the complications in 2019, he kind of returned to AAA last season. He's now had that full offseason to, to kind of heal up and prepare for the 2020 season. Um, but beyond that, he he did really well. And this is kind of cherry picking. There's small sample sizes abounding right here because he hasn't played a whole lot of meaningful baseball in the past year plus. Um, but in, in those eight games that he played in AAA for, to rehab to close out 2019, he did pretty well. He hit 240. Um, he had a 406 on base percentage with a 480 slugging percentage. So that comes out to an 886 OPS, which is really great. Um, granted, it is against AAA, um, and he had a 132 weighted runs created plus in those AAA games. Again, small sample size, small sample size, um, but still really good stats. For and it looked like a you know complete 180 from what he was doing for those few games in 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 the MLB. Um, he also had some pretty interesting underlying stats for those games that he was playing at the major league level, he managed to replicate his fly ball percentage that really fueled his 2018 breakout. So he had a 44.2% last year, I believe it was 48% in 2018 when he had that breakout. Um, and he posted the highest hard hit rate of his career last season, despite having that um, injury, that injury and frustrating his shoulder. Uh, he had, he had a 38.5% hard hit rate, which is highest of his career. Um, and to kind of add a little more credence to the potential for him having a bounce back season, he's coming off a stellar spring. I know I said spring stats don't generally indicate success for the coming season. Um, but it's worth noting for him just because he hasn't played a whole lot of meaningful baseball in the past season. So he had a 381 average 519 on base percentage and a 667 slugging percentage. That's insane. Uh, the the opponent quality grade that Baseball Reference gave the pitchers he was facing throughout spring was 8.3, which is right around its basically AAA level players. Um, so based on that, if you saw a kid put that up in AAA for a full season, we'd be saying that he has nothing left to prove at AAA. He's clearly ready for the bigs. Um, so kind of looking over all those stats, I think that. Polanco, even though he comes with risk, he's he's got injury risk still because he's he's only had one or two full seasons that he's played. Um, I still think that he's a great bounce back candidate. He showed um, a lot of 
continuity from some of those underlying stats from his breakout 2018 season. Um, and he even improved upon that in some ways, despite having that injured shoulder. Um, so I think Polanco is worth considering for anybody who, who really needs help in the, in their outfield mix. Um, moving on now, the last two p- players I'm going to name are both starting pitchers. I'm sure there's plenty of players starting pitching was at a premium last season. I'm sure there's plenty of teams out there that need some extra starting pitching depth. So hopefully these guys can be helpful. Uh, the first of those is Anthony Desclafany, the starting pitcher for Cincinnati. Uh, had a breakout season last year. Just as a note, as I'm talking through pitchers, there's going to be two stats that I named that you may not be familiar with. The first is FIP, F-I-P, stands for Fielding Independent Pitching. Um, and the second that I may mention once or twice is Sierra, S-I-E-A-R-E-R-A. And that's, both of those are basically just predictive ERA metrics. Um, they similar to what weighted on base average and weighted runs created plus do for batters. These metrics try to determine the true underlying skill of of any given pitcher. Um, FIP does it by essentially ignoring the results of balls in play for pitchers and really giving heavy, heavy weights to how often are they striking out guys? How often are they walking guys and so forth? Basically taking the luck and be that good luck or bad luck out of the equation for if you're a ground ball pitcher and you get a whole lot of ground ball outs <clears throat> you're not going to necessarily have a great FIP rating if you're not not striking out guys a lot and you're walking a lot of guys as well um, Sierra does it um, more so just by evaluating how pitchers prevent hits and runs um, in all the different ways they do that so Sierra may give a better rating to a ground ball pitcher like that um, so long as they are getting strikeouts and limiting their walks, whereas FIP may still kind of limit how well they rate them because they're giving up so many balls in play, if that makes sense at all. So moving on into Anthony Desclafany. Um, This is a guy who the three seasons before last year really – struggle with injuries. He had two seasons where he pitched about 120 innings a piece, um, was just on and off the IR. He missed the entire 2017 season, I believe, um, with a UCL injury that he didn't have surgery for it, but he was just shut down for the year and kind of rehabbed it. Um, so he came out last year, um, and, and really showed out. He put together his only a second fully healthy season with 30 starts or more. Um, the only other one he did that in was 2015, so that's a good long while ago. Um, but he found a lot of success last year, the most of his career, um, in large part thanks to a boost in his velocity uh, and as well as thanks to some really critical adjustments he made to his pitch mix across the season into the second half. Um, and, and as we're looking at those, I think there's reasons to believe that Desclafany could be in for a nice encore to his 2019 season uh, for this upcoming year. So like I said, after those three injury marred seasons that he had in Cincinnati, um, he rebounded in a big way last year. It's he, he had a career high 94.9 average fastball velocity, which doesn't sound crazy high compared to the guys you hear that are hitting 100 pretty f- frequently, but his previous high was only 94.1, and that was in 2018, uh, and even that was an improvement to the previous season. So he's been adding velocity for the past couple of seasons, um, 
And this year he made a really drastic jump, almost a full mile per hour. Um, and it, it caused some issues for batters trying to adjust to him. Uh, he, as a result of that, he, he posted a career high 9.02 strikeouts per nine innings. Um, before that, he's, his highest was 8.45. And even that was last season, or that was season four, 2018. Even before that, he'd never posted a K per nine above eight. Um, but even taking those into account, the, the greatest improvements that he made came in the adjustments he made to his pitch mix. So as batters all across Major League Baseball last season were hitting the juice ball out of the park at a historic rate, um, he actually made adjustments to his pitch mix aimed at inducing more ground balls and less home runs. Um, he'd generally been a pretty balanced guy, uh, but he, in the second half of last season, really swung to being really ground ball heavy, um, making sure that he didn't let batters put the ball in the air and result in fewer home runs for him. Um, he struggled pretty badly in the first half. He had a 4-2-6 ERA um, with a 4-6-6 fielding independent pitching. Um, so even some of those ERA, predictive ERA indicators thought that his ERA should have been worse. Um, but like I said, he was pretty balanced. He had a 41.4 fly ball percentage compared to a 38.2 ground ball rate. Um, but he allowed up 1.77 home runs per nine inning, um, which is fairly high compared to most major league pitchers. Um, in the second half, however, he started throwing his curveball and his four-seamer less, and he leaned a lot more heavily on his sinker, his slider, and his changeup. And that resulted in some pretty drastic changes for him for the better. Um, he had He went from having a 41.4 fly ball rate to only a 34.7 fly ball rate drastically increased the number of ground balls from 38.2% to 48.4%, so 10 whole percentage points. Uh, and he decreased his home runs per nine from 1.77 to 1.35. So that's almost half a home run less per inning, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot when you extrapolate that across 160 innings or even just you know the 70, 80 innings he did in the second half, it really made some drastic improvements for him, and it resulted in his ERA dropping to 3.49 in the second half with a much better predictive ERA of 4.12 FIP. Um, so even the fielding independent pitching didn't think he was quite as good as what his ERA was, um, but he was still pretty solid. Um, entering 2020, he still comes with a bit of an injury risk tag, because he's had so many injuries across the past couple seasons previous to this 2019 season. Um, but he's coming off a career year. He made some really great improvements in the second half um, that really helped to improve his game and take it to a next level. Um, and as a result, you know, that paired with the increase in velocity, I think that he could be a very useful starting pitcher in 2020. There are a lot of teams out there that probably towards the back end of their roster on their bench – um, have other starting pitchers that maybe are poorly projected um, by ESPN and these other projection systems. And, you know, maybe guys coming off injury that you aren't super sold on, maybe guys that for whatever reason um, you you would feel comfortable dropping and disclapping it could be a really good um, option to increase your depth in pitching. Uh, the second pitcher I want to talk about, the fifth player of the top five, <clears throat> is Steven Matz starting pitcher for the Mets. Um, he is projected for 160 innings pitched, 
Um, they're projecting 10 wins for him, 155 strikeouts, and a 4-2-3 ERA with a 1-3-2 whip. I'm also realizing I don't think I read off Disclafney's projections, but um, they're a little low on him because of the injury history. They're projecting 147 innings, 8 wins, 145 strikeouts, so still good strikeout numbers, uh, 4-5-2 ERA, and a 1-2-8 whip. Um, like we discussed, I think he'll do a little better than that. Um, so kind of the summary of Disclafney is before we dig into him and go more deep with the stats. Um, he had some first half struggles last season. As a result, he was put in the bullpen for a little, like a week and a half, two weeks. Um, but despite all that, he put together his second straight season with 150 quality innings, uh, 30 plus, you know, 30 starts in each of the past two seasons. Um, and his 2019 stats were nearly identical to his 2018 stats in just about every regard. So he's a super reliable, super consistent pitcher. Um, gives him a really good floor to start with and depend on. Uh, but he also made some improvements in the second half that I think could mean maybe a bit of a breakout could be in store for him in 2020. And I think it should be on a radar because of that. <clears throat> so like I said, over the first half, he really struggled. He had a 4.95 ERA as a starter, so he pitched 80.2 in, or 80 innings flat as a starter, and then he pitched across two outings, one inning combined as a relief pitcher. Um, so I'm not counting those in this um, in in these stats that I'm reading off, but as a starter in those eight innings, just for the first half, 4.95 ERA, really atrocious. And then he was jettisoned to the bullpen. Um, kind of heading right into the all-star break. Um, over that same span, before he was put in the bullpen, he had a three. He had 3.26 walks per nine that he gave up, which is a, an extremely high number. He really struggled with control, gave up way too many walks. Um, gave up 2.03 home runs per nine, which again is a, I said, Disclafany is 1.77, and the first half was really high. Matt's struggled even worse, gave up a ton of home runs. Um, gave up a 272 average with a, a 308 batting average on balls, balls in play, so he wasn't necessarily getting terribly unlucky. Um, and he gave up a relatively low 36.3 fly ball percentage, um, came with a 39.6 hard hit rate. Uh, so he was just getting obliterated. Guys were hitting home runs. He was giving up a ton of walks, so give up a ton of walks and then he give up a ton of home runs, giving up even more runs with that. Just struggled all around in the first half before he was put in the bullpen. <clears throat> then he has the all-star break to kind of clear his mind. Um, and heading into the second half, they reinstated him as a starting pitcher. Um, between each half, his plate discipline metrics were nearly identical. Um, like He was incredibly consistent in that regard. So it's not like he started striking out more guys all of a sudden. Uh, he didn't all of a sudden get guys to make less contact. Uh, I mean, it was, he didn't make guys swing outside of the zone and getting bad counts all of a sudden. Uh, he he was incredibly consistent in his play discipline metrics. Um, so what is it that changed that caused him to have this really great second half? Well, he started throwing his fastball significantly less, went from throwing it 54% of the time to 46% of the time. Threw his changeup a little bit less um, from 21% of the time to 18.5. He still has a really good changeup, so he still threw it quite a bit, but really pulled back on how often he was throwing that fastball. 
because uh, he was given a whole lot of fly balls up with that. Um, and in turn, he really greatly increased his slider usage. Um, so he went from throwing the slider 9.7% of the time in the first half to 198 So he was throwing that slider just about as much as his changeup. Um, and he had really great results when he did that change. So coming out of in the second half, coming out of the All-Star break, when he implemented those changes, he gave up significantly fewer home runs. He went from giving up 2.03 home runs per nine inning to just 1.02 home runs per nine. Um, so a whole less home run that he was giving up every nine innings on average. Uh, gave up much less hits, much less base runners. Uh, was only giving up a 238 average to opponents. Um, wasn't walking nearly as much like we just said. He also started giving up fewer fly balls and um, inducing more soft contact and less giving up less hard contact. So um, his fly ball rate dropped 30.5%. His hard hit rate dropped to 32.9%. Um, they weren't exceptionally high to start with, but they were still on the higher end for pitchers, and he brought it much lower to a much more respectable level. So all of those adjustments that you can observe in those underlying stats, paired with his improved control, he went from allowing 3.26 walks per nine innings to only 2.6 walks per nine innings. Um, all that kind of came together and resulted in him having a 3.52 ERA in the second half, much lower than the 4.95 from the first half. Uh, he had a 3.78 fielding independent pitching with that second half ERA. So a little higher than his actual ERA, but still a very respectable ERA for the second half. Um, indicating that the changes were legit, that he wasn't getting lucky. Um, he was actually a much improved pitcher because of those changes. Um, so in him, in, in Steven Matz, you have a guy who, because of his year over year consistency for the past couple seasons, he's got a really high floor. Um, he's a really consistent, reliable guy, like we said. But because of these changes that he made in the second half, I think he's got really high upside coming into 2020. And he could he could really potentially be a, a big-time steal off of waivers, uh, particularly for any team that desperately needs depth at pitching. So if you have a handful of guys um, starting the season on the injured list out of your pitchers or guys that maybe, maybe you got somebody like we mentioned earlier that has a suspension and because the season's being delayed, they're potentially looking at missing close to half the season because of that suspension. Steven Matz would be a great option to add just to infuse some really quality depth into your, your pitching um, on your roster. <clears throat> so that concludes the top five guys. And just to do some quick hits here at the end, I wanted to go through a list of names that are also available on um, waivers right now. Not guys that I thought made the top five cut, um, but guys I still think are worth considering. I'll tell you why they didn't make the top five. I'll also tell you why I think they're worth you considering. But like I said, they're going to be quick hits. We're not going to go into a ton of in-depth analysis of their stats. So the first name, and this is really in no particular order. I'm naming batters first and then pitchers, just like I did with the top five. The first name is uh, Yoshi Susugu. He's the, um, the player signed by the Rays uh, out of Japan. He It's kind of unsure where he's going to play. He's listed in ESPN as an outfielder, so I'm going to say he's an outfielder. 
but there's been all kinds of reports from the Rays saying that he might play third base. Uh, he'll likely also play DH quite a bit. Um, this is a dude who has big time power. He was a prolific power hitter for the past several seasons uh, in Japan's professional baseball league. Um, <coughs> he's he's coming over with a lot of hype as a result, despite not being owned in our league and and not being owned very widely in ESPN leagues. Even um, still has quite a bit of hype because of it. He was a pretty exciting addition. Um, the Rays pursued him pretty hard. Uh, reasons I don't think he makes the top five is because. Namely, I mean, namely, he, he may really struggle with the adjustment to MLB pitching. Uh, there's been so many guys that have come over from Japan and tried to make that adjustment. And just because these players coming over from the Japanese league are not used to seeing pitchers throwing in the upper 90s with filthy breaking stuff routinely, uh, it's a huge adjustment when you do come in and you're, pit, and you're facing off against Max Scherzer and Garrett Cole and guys like that. Um, and even like the lesser guys in in Major League Baseball are still really talented pitchers compared to what some of these batters are used to facing. And if you really think about it, um, of all the players that have come over to the MLB from Japan, um, there's really only two, I guess now three hitters who have successfully made that transition. You got Ichiro, you got Hideki Matsui, who was the most prolific um, power hitting batter from Japan, um, from the J- Japanese league. And now we have Shohei Otani, who, um, despite the injuries, he's, he's still been a pretty solid hitter. That's the only three names you got. So that kind of tempers expectations for Shusugu. Um, I don't think, you know, he was a guy who was pretty routinely hitting 35, 40 home runs in the Japanese league. I don't think you should expect that this season because, that adjustment to major league pitching just is so difficult. Um, there's also the concern of he he may not have a super clear path to playing time. Um, the Rays made a ton of trades, ton of different additions this offseason. Um, Shisugu's not particularly adept at defense. Uh, there's been some reports that they've been impressed with how he's adjusted to try and put to learning third base and playing a bit of outfield in spring training. Um, but that being said, the Rays are constantly changing their lineup. They're notorious for platooning their batters, even their really good good batters. Um, so there's also, despite all the hype, the reason for hype, because he's such a great power hitter and he's such a disciplined batter, um, really patient hitter that takes a lot of walks, there's also plenty to tamper those expectations. Um, that said... And I'm, I'm spending a little more time on him because there's some nuances to it. But that said, the Rays have done plenty in the past few seasons to earn the attention of fantasy managers. Um, so I would say whenever the Rays, and it's partly why I've flip-flopped so much and gone back and forth on adding Shishugo, whenever the Rays pursue a player, uh, I think that's worth taking notice of because they've had a lot of success of taking guys from other teams and turning them into success stories on their own team. They did it with Austin Meadows um, when he was healthy last season. They did it with Andy Diaz. They did it with um, Tommy Pham before they traded him. He was he was kind of slumping after he had this one miraculous season with the Cardinals, and then he was kind of slumping. Comes over to Tampa Bay, does incredible again. 
<clears throat> they also did on the pitching side of things with uh, Charlie Morton, Tyler Glass now, plenty of other guys. Um, so whenever the Rays pursue a player, they did were pretty aggressive in pursuing Shishugo, um, despite the fact that they've added all these other guys through trades and through free agency this offseason. Uh, I think it's worth taking note of. Um, and because of how prolific of a hitter he was in the Japanese league, I think he's worth considering, even though he doesn't quite make the top five. He's not like a, a guy who I think absolutely should be owned. But if you've got a spot on the back end of your roster, if you need help with power hitting, um, he's only 28, so he's not particularly old. He, you can have him for several seasons in, in our Dynasty League. Um, I think he's worth owning because of that. The rest of this list is going to move a little quicker. The second guy is Shogo Akiyama, um, another player that came over from the Japanese League. He's a bit older. I think he's 32, maybe. Um, but for Cincinnati signed him. Kind of was a surprise when they signed him because um, there's not really a clear fit. They were expecting Nick Senzel to be the starting center fielder. Now it's kind of expected that Akiyama is going to be playing center field quite a bit. Um and potentially hitting in the leadoff spot quite a bit. If that's the case, he could be a really great um, source of, you know, good batting average, good amount of runs, um, out of few stolen bases. He was he was pretty good at stealing bases in the Japanese league. Um, but the same conditions apply to him as with Shishugo. Uh, how is he going to make that adjustment to major league pitching? And... Um, what's his playing time going to be like because they do have so many different pieces out there in the outfield uh, that they can mix and match with. And the Reds don't have the added benefit of a designated hitter slot to, to play around with. So Akiyama could be a good source of some ratios and counting stats, but um, there's also plenty of concern heading into 2020 that we don't really can't say concretely one way or the other um, that he's, worth those risks quite yet third player on this list eric thames past several seasons been a great source of power great source of um ops uh even though it's a slight downgrade and ballpark for him moving from milwaukee to washington uh it really is only a slight because milwaukee is great for home runs um, but washington is better for offensive numbers overall and he also moves into an upgraded lineup from what he had around him in Milwaukee. Uh, that said, Thames is probably, he's likely just going to be in a platoon. Um, I think he's strictly going to play more first base. I don't think he gets as many opportunities in outfield, so um, he may get less playing time as a result. Uh, but I think Washington's going to find a way to get him in the roster, get him in the lineup, rather. Uh, likewise, he's also a big drain on your batting average. He usually hits around 230 or 240. So you got to take that into account when you're considering uh, the potential benefits of his power numbers when you bring him on. Fourth guy I want to talk about, Matt Carpenter. Um, he was kind of turned into a fantasy pariah last season after had these this great 2017 and 2018 season. Uh, and then due to injuries and all kinds of other things, just really struggled last year. I think he's a potential rebound candidate, though. He had a really good last month of the season. Uh, he also had a phenomenal spring for what that's worth. Um, but he is aging. Um, they did have some younger players that kind of stepped up in his struggles and absence last season, so he may be losing out on playing time. If not because he struggled last season, then 
just because they may want to conserve him a bit more and give him more more days off to rest and keep him fresh. Because um, part of the reason that he struggled last year was struggled staying fresh, struggled staying healthy with different, not major injuries, but nagging injuries. Um, so I don't think you should expect pre-2019 version of Matt Carpenter, but I do think he can bounce back, give you good, a decent amount of home runs, 20, 25 home runs maybe, uh, with a good OPS, and he's still in a pretty solid lineup. Uh, fifth player on the list, Ian Happ. Um, this is a guy who several seasons back was a bit of a sleeper. He's always had a bit of hype to him because he was such a great power hitter in the minors and offered, offered some steals and such. Um, he had a really solid end to last season um, after he got called up. He spent the majority of last year uh, in AAA, and that was kind of a bit of a tension point for between him and the organization. But he got called up at the end of the year, um, did really great. Uh, he's had a phenomenal spring training. The stats that he had in the shortened spring training were just incredible. Um, he does strike out a ton. He's pretty streaky pretty inconsistent and like Eric Thames he can be a drain on your batting average he likewise hits around 230 240 generally um but he's got great upside he particularly in terms of home runs and stolen bases he could be a pretty good source for those so I think Ian Happ is a name to consider um it's uncertain if he's going to play primarily outfield or second base for the Cubs this year but if if you're needing depth at either of those positions you want a younger guy that has upside for dynasty purposes um he's worth a, a dart throw probably um moving to the pitchers on this list and like i said usually this list is only going to be about, be about three names to rattle off at the end um, because it's the beginning of the season i think there's a few extra names um, out there that are worth touching on um moving on to the pitchers though the sixth name on the list is going to be jose Urquidy, uh starting pitcher for the Astros. Um, I think he could potentially be a breakout candidate. Uh, he's got pretty good strikeout numbers, um, pretty solid ratios with his ERA and whip. Um, he had some really good playoff performances last season, but he's had a really terrible spring training. So I'm not sure if that means you should really temper the expectations because a lot of guys are rusty in spring, especially coming off of a, a playoff run. Um, He's also not yet confirmed as having a playoff spot, but it's um, of the younger pitchers that the Astros have. He he had about 140 combined innings last season between minors and majors um, and also between the bullpen and starting rotation. Uh, they don't have a lot of guys who've gotten 100 or more innings for them that had major league experience that they can rely on for the to fill some of those vacated starting pitcher spots. So just about everybody out there is projecting him to be a starting pitcher. It's a pretty safe bet. If you're looking for a breakout guy, you want to have, um, say you miss out on, on Steven Matz or Anthony Sclafany, or if you just want to take a guy that has um, a little more risk to him but potentially more upside, I think Rikidi is a good name to consider. Uh, next pitcher is Kyle Gibson. Had a pretty rough year last year. Um, but I think he could be in for a potential bounce back as he moves to Texas Rangers this year. Um, he had a breakout 2018, really struggled last year, had terrible luck with um, kind of his strand rate, the percentage of players that he left on base. Um, generally 
pitchers leave about 70 strand about 70 to 75 percent of the the base runners they allow I think he was closer to 60 to 65 I think closer to 60 even so really unlucky Uh, that means a higher percentage of the base runners that he allowed were coming around and scoring um, as opposed to what was average among most major league pitchers Um, he will need to limit home runs Uh, he had a 2018 a lot of his, his success was fueled by him limiting that. He kind of regressed in that area um, He in 2019, but he may benefit generally pitchers moving to Texas or even visiting pitchers playing in, in the Rangers stadium. Uh, years past, that would have been a death sentence, almost as bad as pitching in Coors Field. Um, but the Rangers got a new stadium. They got a new roof. Uh, that roof's going to be closed most of the time, which means they're not going to deal with the, the higher... Um, temperatures and all the different factors that made uh, the Rangers stadium such a offensive powerhouse. Uh, So it's going to kind of dampen a lot of those offensive numbers and and especially in the home runs. Um, So Kyle Gibson may benefit from that. And and also Texas kind of has a track record from last season of creating these reclamation projects, a pitcher, um, you know, they had both Mike Miner and Lance Lynn that came to them in the offseason going into 2018. And by and large, those guys were considered washed up um, and, and people kind of written them off. And then with the Rangers, they have these uh, renaissance seasons. And so there's potential just because Texas has shown a knack for doing that with those guys. Um, there's potential that Kyle Gibson could be kind of this year's version of those guys and, and have a a solid bounce back season with Texas. Um, the next pitcher I want to talk about Adrian Hauser. I talked about him in one of the, um, off season waiver wire waiver player additions. Um, he had a really strong second half last year. He's got great strikeout numbers. He had great ratios. I break that down in more depth than one of the, in whichever post that was. Um, but last year was his first full season as a starting pitcher. He was usually a bullpen guy before that. Um, so how many innings he's going to pitch, his durability is a concern. He didn't pitch, even even in the innings he pitched last year, very few of his outings as a starter went five innings or longer. Um, so you're potentially losing out on quality starts there, maybe even some wins. Uh, but his ratios and his strikeouts were great, especially down the stretch. So I think it's still worth considering. And he's also now had a full offseason to prepare for a starting pitcher's workload across the full season. Um, so that may be, those concerns may be alleviated a bit. Uh, next pitcher I want to touch on Chris Bassett for Oakland had a really solid year last year as a starting pitcher, um, kind of bounced between bullpen a little bit. Uh, we had good K numbers, good ratios with his ERA and whip. Um, only problem with him is he's likely going to get moved to the bullpen whenever AJ Puke is healthy for the, um, athletics. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head when that is, and especially with the season being delayed, um, Puke may be missing less time relative to the season, so Bassett may not be worth owning, but based on how good he was last season and the opportunities he has as a starter, I think he's kind of worth looking into at least. And the last name of these guys that I want to specifically touch on is Pablo Lopez. Uh, Like I said in one of those um, off-season posts, he had terrible home and road splits last season. Um, he got injured 
during the first half. And then when we returned from the IL, he was, uh, he just struggled immensely. Um, he just never was the same. So um, coming into 2020, he's healthy now, but he might be negatively impacted. I said Texas kind of changed some things with their stadium. Um, the Marlins are also a team that they they changed some things with their stadium, so they moved in the, infield, the outfield walls a little bit. Um, that potentially, uh, overall, um, the Marlins stadium is still a very pitcher-friendly ballpark, um, but just the fact of the outfield walls being moved in a little closer might negatively impact Pablo Lopez a little bit. That's why he's on the back end of this list. Um, and also just the fact that he did have a really bad home road splits last year. There's plenty of concern there. Um, but he was, like I, I mentioned in that post, he was just so good at the start of 2019. In particular, he was elite when he was pitching at home. Uh, and I think those outings alone, those innings you get from him pitching at home, make him worth a flyer going into 2020. Um, as you're kind of looking at, you know, filling out the depth of your pitching. Um, as a bonus, I know we're going late on this episode, but there was one last thing I wanted to mention. I was looking at some people's rosters um, the other day, and I know last season we talked about in some of the episodes that there are certain teams that started making the decision to to just boot saves. Um, they only had two or three relief pitchers that were reliable. Um, they weren't winning that category, so they either – traded away guys, just included them in trades to get guys they wanted, or they uh, just dropped them and picked up other guys off waivers. Um, and as a result, there's a handful of different teams, close to half the teams, I think, in the league that are currently without relief pitchers and maybe only have one or two relief pitchers. Um, I think it's worth notice, noting that as a strategy um, – the reason that some teams made that decision to uh, to boot saves is sound. If you're you know if you're losing out on one category every week, despite what you already have on your roster, it's not necessarily worth keeping those guys that you have on the roster contributing to that one category. Um, so you might as well improve in other categories with that roster spot. Um, that's sound reasoning and sound strategy. The problem is I notice a lot of teams. Um, in turn filled those roster spots that relief pitchers were occupying with batters. So now they have, you know, seven, eight, nine different batters on their bench. Um, and what happens then is, you know, you, you think you're just booting the one category. You think you're just booting saves hold, but you're not accounting for all those innings that those relief pitchers are getting you, uh, all this. And with those innings, all the strikeouts they're getting you, um, all the ways that they're helping to lower your ERA and your whip in every matchup when they're pitching. Um, And potentially some of the wins that they're getting you as they're coming in and maybe getting a win here or there in the late innings. Um, So really you're potentially booting all of the pitching categories. um, Specifically, if you're dropping or trading those relief pitchers and not replacing their roster spot with a starting pitcher who's, going to help you recoup those strikeouts in the area and the whip and so forth. Um, and instead you just go and add a batter who's going to sit on your bench because batters on your bench don't get your stats to count. So, um, 
with that in mind, I just I was kind of looking over waivers the other day, and there's a ton of relief pitchers that are really solid that are out there, and knowing that there's a handful of teams that have only one or two or absolutely no relief pitchers, um, there's guys that are sitting out there for free right now that you could just drop the worst player on your team, um, pick up a couple of relievers, you know, four or five relievers, and all of a sudden you can compete in that category every single week. So I just want to rattle off. I'm not even going to talk about why. I'm just going to rattle rattle off some names um, that I saw that uh, Fangraphs or ESPN or both project to have a fair, like a, a pretty high amount of saves and holds, um, good strikeout numbers, uh, good ERA, respectable ERA and whip. Um, so Keone Kayla, who's projected to be the closer for Pittsburgh, um, Joe Jimenez, who's projected to be the closer for Detroit. Something we talked about last season, even though it's a bad team, there's still saves there. Uh, we saw it with Sergio Romo last year. Um, the Miami Marlins were a terrible team. Romo was a guy who ended up being added and then traded in our league because he still had value. Um, Giovanni Gallegos for St. Louis, who I've touched on in one of the offseason posts. Um, Alternately, part of the reason I suggested Gallegos is because Jordan Hicks was coming off um, Tommy John surgery. He was going to be missing a significant portion of the season. With the season being pushed back, Hicks may be starting the season or at least coming in after the first few weeks. Uh, And he has been a phenomenal relief pitcher before the injury. So either one of those guys worth picking up. Drew Pomerantz and Emilio Pagan, both for San Diego. I think Drew Pomerantz had a little more appeal before the Padres traded for Pagan. I don't know how either one of them is going to eat into the other's workload and and potentially take away holds or saves that the other would be getting. Um, But both were phenomenal uh, last season in the bullpen. Both worth going and picking up if you just need a relief pitcher. Matt Barnes for Boston. Um... Probably not going to be the closer. He lost the closing job last year, but still was phenomenal. Got a ton of strikeouts and great ratios. Just happened to blow a lot of saves as well. Uh, Ryan Presley for Houston, not a closer. He is one of the primary setup guys. Gets a ton of holds. Gets great strikeout numbers. Gets incredible ratios. Uh, Zach Britton for New York does not get a ton of strikeouts, but got a ton of holds last season and had an ERA below two last season. He had an incredible ERA. Um, and lastly, two guys from Milwaukee. Uh, Freddie Peralta has been moved to the bullpen on a more permanent basis, I believe. Um, he did really well out of the bullpen last year and potentially could be the primary setup guy um, for for Milwaukee there. Uh, but also Corey Knable, who's coming off um, Tommy John surgery, missed all of last or most of yeah, all of last season. Um, but before that, he was a phenomenal pitcher. He was the closer for a bit before Josh Hader really rose to per, um, to um, being such a profound pitcher for them. Um, he's he's healthy to start this season, could once again be a force for Milwaukee out of the bullpen, get a ton of innings, get a ton of strikeouts, saves, holds the whole. So any number of those guys I think are worth owning. I'm sure there's plenty more out there. Those are just some of the top names that as I was glancing over that I thought were worth mentioning. Um, but yeah, there's tons of relievers, relief pitchers out there that are worth picking up, especially for teams that um, ended up dropping or trading away relief pitchers last year uh, and have this, as a result, just this glut of uh, 
batters that are just sitting on their bench not getting them stats during matchups. Um, if you still don't want to go for the relief pitchers, I think any any of these guys are great. Even if you have three or four um, or five relief pitchers, you just need one or two extra. Um, but yeah, I would suggest if you, if you are booting saves and holds, um, replace those relief pitchers with starting pitchers, guys that are going to help you still contribute to strikeouts and ERA and whip. Because um, otherwise, you're not just kicking the tire. You're not just booting one category, but you're ended up booting, you know, four, potentially five different categories. Um, and, and that's hurting you across the board in your pitching stats and your matchups. Um, yeah, that's all I have for you guys today. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. I know this was a bit longer. Like I said, generally these episodes where I'm just talking over waiver players are going to be 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, took a bit of time at the front end, just kind of introing everything for this season and, and explaining some of the reasons for this change um, in the format for this segment. Um, but really excited about the season. Um, I know it's going to be delayed still, but I think there's some optimism that we might still have baseball in 2020. Um, and with that being the case, I think it's it's exciting to still kind of look at what the fantasy season could look like. So let me know you guys' feedback. Let me know if you agree with these players, if you disagree, why you might agree or disagree. Um, and if you like the players I named, go out and add them because they're, they're sitting there for free. Um, but yeah, good luck this season, guys. Stay healthy. Wash your hands. Don't cough on each other. Um, do not follow the advice of the American heavy metal band Disturbed. Um, do not get down with the sickness. <laughs>